0: Guardian Unlimited
1: As the House will know, my right honourable friend, the Prime Minister is on an official uh, visit, meeting the heads of government in Australia, New Zealand and Indonesia. While away, my right honourable friend has supported all our athletes competing at the Commonwealth Games. I'm I'm sure the House would wish to congratulate all of them on their success. He's also addressed the Australian Parliament and has today participated in Climate Change Conference in New Zealand In Indonesia, who will meet the President and Islamic leaders.
0: David Taylor.
1: The, uh, the PM's Antipodean away days are, are surely unconnected with my appearance at Question One, but in his absence. <laughs> <laughs> But in his absence, the row about links between private philanthropy and political preference rumbles on, a major problem to all parties since Lloyd George through to Azul Madeira and up to the present day. Can the Deputy Prime Minister tell me when we plan to deliver on our manifesto, page 110, in major reform of the Lords and cleaning up party finance, which, as his predecessor, the noble Lord Hatterley said in Monday's Guardian, it appears to be a choice between state funding and millionaires' handouts? I'm delighted to have my honourable friend giving me the full support on a manifesto. It's not necessarily always guaranteed. But this, this, this is an issue which many feel very strongly about. I want to make clear our manifesto pledged that the absurdity in the 21st century, that hereditary peers still have a major role in making the laws of our country. Let us be clear... Let me be clear to the House what that manifesto said. It said we wanted to get rid of the remaining hundred hereditary peers, and we wanted to change the rules that affect the orders of the House of Lords that prevent the will of this House being carried out. As on ID cards, that's what we intend to change. That's the manifesto commitment, and we will carry it out.
0: Mr. William Hague. Uh, Mr Deputy Speaker, what representations did the Deputy Prime Minister make to the Chancellor to continue the £200 to help pensioners with council tax? I'm delighted to see the Right Honourable Member <laughs> back on the front bench
1: in a leadership role. It just seems seem that the Tories have been going through leaders so fast, they've started at the beginning again. <laughs> They're now so green, they're even recycling their leaders. And of course... Us Rotherham lads must stick together, mustn't we? But anyway, as the... Honourable, the point made by the Right Honourable Member is that the 200 pounds yes, we did have discussion with the Chancellor, yes, we did discuss about the heating money that's given of £200. No, it was a commitment to give it in one year, as we did, and all, the work, all that we have given to the pensioners are very, very considerable, and if you consider the record of what we've done for pensioners in this country against what he did in government, then I'm quite proud to stand against
0: that record.
1: Well, oh This shouting must stop. Mr William Hague.
0: Mr. Deputy, the Deputy Prime Minister should be more sympathetic to elderly council taxpayers. He's over 65 and he didn't pay council tax for years. <laughs> the, uh, this week's This week's figures show council tax has now risen by 84% since the government came to office. A typical pensioner couple will have to pay £254 more in council tax next year than this. What was so special about election year that pensioners needed £200 help with their council tax just for that one year? (laughs) It is the overall policy of this government to
1: actually consider the pensioner payments and the other matters that we give to them and to consider in in the round. That, I think, is what we have done. That is what we uh, continue to do. And as for the argument about the payment of the Council tax, let me tell him, and he must know it again in the comparison between our Government and his Government, that we gave in the response a 39% increase in real terms in Council tax, compared to the last five years of which he had some influence, where there was an actual reduction of 7% in real terms of contribution to the Councils for their Council tax.
0: I think there was so little English in that answer, President Chirac would have been happy with it. <laughs> uh, the, the fact is... The fact is that... Age... Age Concern said the Chancellor's decision, beggars' belief, helped the aged describe the payment as a pre-election bribe and said it exposed a shameful level of political expediency. Yeah, yeah. When the government thinks pensioners need £200 to help with council tax only when an election is due, does the Deputy Prime Minister understand why people are so cynical about politics? Yeah. I think cynical about
1: politics came more about 18 years of a Tory government than it ever came out on this. And, you know, I just say to the Honourable Member, I may get the grammar wrong, that's true, and I'll have to take the blame for that. That was my education, I'm responsible for it. But, you know, I'd sooner... I'd sooner get perhaps the words wrong than getting my judgment wrong. After all, he was the leader who slammed the England independence. He was the leader who claimed that the minimum wage was the height of irresponsibility and would cause unemployment. And he was the leader who said that Lord Archer was a man of integrity. Now, if there's a choice between getting my words wrong or getting the judgment wrong, I'd sooner have my problem, not his. I say to the, can, I, can I just say to the honourable member, since he mentioned President Girac, has he still said that he believes that those who describe the French as cheese eating surrender monkeys, does he believe that? Because if he does, it makes him look me a master of diplomacy. <laughs> And the arrival of spring, the days are getting longer and the clocks went back this weekend. Very topical. With that in mind, with that in mind, will the Deputy Prime Minister join me in welcoming the building of what will be the world's largest clock, the Solar Pyramid, an enormous and absolutely beautiful sundial in northeast Derbyshire? And will he accept my invitation to visit the newest and best tourist attraction in Derbyshire once it is built? Yeah. I would, of course, always delighted to be, visit Don, da, Derbyshire. But let me just say to her also, I think it's a lot to do with the very successful coalfield community policy that we brought in, which is £500 million, trying to restore communities that have been destroyed by the Thatcher government when they closed down the match. So I will be delighted. I'm delighted to hear of the, uh, the structure she just referred to. And let me say I'm also well aware that, in fact, it's the Skinner Junction connected to it. So I think it will make, make a memorable place for us to visit, and I look forward to accepting her invitation. To
0: David Heath, you will, let, let, Let's get back to the Council text, because I don't think we quite had an answer
1: since the deputy prime minister took office in one thousand nine hundred and ninety seven council tax bills have nearly doubled. now whose fault is that? the honourable member will well first of all i should welcome him as the acting uh, deputy leader we all know that the election is to take place after uh, today i wish him well in that it is a matter riveting to the attention of the nation in fact in fact In my visit to Hull this weekend, they talked of nothing else in the puds. But let me be absolutely clear to him, and he well knows... If you look at the council tax, I say that we have given more to councils than any other local authority, a 39% increase, increases in services, and when you compare the local authorities and the payment of council tax, again, Labour is providing better service at a lower council tax than either the Liberals or the Tory councils in comparison. David
0: Heath. Well, I'm grateful for his good wishes. I'm not sure it'll help me a lot. Uh, but let's, let's get this right, then. He's saying that thousands of councillors up and down the country, and all councils, whether they're Conservative, Liberal, Democrat, or Labour, have taken collective leave of their senses year after year to push up the council tax, and that's nothing to do with the government. That's nothing to do with the government. That's what he's saying. And he's also, he's also saying he's also saying that this year... Council tax has gone up by twice the rate that the pension has gone up, and he's taking away the £200 rebate. Isn't the answer to council tax not to cap it, but to scrap it? Well,
1: the Honourable Member is well aware that the debate is going on in this chamber about what the alternative should be to a council tax or what changes it should make. That is why we've committed the inquiry, the Lion's Inquiry, to look after it. But I'm bound to say to them, and I don't know whether he is a candidate in this election, is still advocating you should change to a local tax, because it's quite clear in that local tax situation, many people will pay an awful lot more than the present council tax. Yes, and I think but I, I don't know the policy changes are fast on the conservative side they even faster on the liberal side I'll wait to see what happens in this election and what their proposals are as the alternative to the council tax we will bring our proposals forward and we'll see what their alternatives are Eric
0: number two Mr Speaker
1: this is where close questions always catch you You know, when you get in the briefing for this, you say, oh, this one's a closed one. You say, oh, yeah. (laughs) Mr. Mr. Deputy Speaker. (laughs) We are offering the people the opportunity to access their benefits through the post office is an important (laughs) objective to this government. The Departments of Works and Pensions and the Post Office are discussing ways that how this can be achieved when the present contractual arrangements end in 2010.
0: Yeah. Mr Eric Illsley, I'm, uh, I'm grateful to my uh, right honourable friend uh, for that reply. As he's, aware, <laughs> <laughs> As he's aware, the decision by the Department of Works and Pensions not to renew the uh, Post Office card account uh, after 2010 has caused a great deal of concern especially amongst pensioners particularly as to the future of the sub post office network Uh, can my right honourable friend together with his colleagues in the DWP work with the major banks and with the post office to find a successor account to the post office card account from 2010 and get that agreed as quickly as possible to stop this scaremongering and these fears about the future of our sub post offices
1: I think the House will agree that um, every DWP customer who currently collects their benefit from the post office will still be able to do so if they wish. I think the House is very clear about that. There will be about 25 different banks associated with the post office order and can be accessed at the post office branches, and we hope this number will grow in the future. I'm told by the post office that they are, in fact, also developing other new banking products for their customers, and some of these will be available for the existing post office card account members. Indeed, I think, as the point is made from time to time, that actually having a transfer to the bank account can sometimes mean to the individual a greater rate of interest than on the post office account. But as long as there is a range of issues there to make the
0: choice, that is the government's objective. Mr. Deputy aye. Speaker, but isn't it a fact that there are over 4 million pensioners with post office card accounts, and millions of these will not have bank accounts at all, stripping them of this vital lifeline? is yet another kick in the teeth for our pensioners and a certain death sentence for thousands more of our post offices. Why is the Government so intent on going ahead with this callous act against our pensioners?
1: I think the uh, concerns expressed by the Honourable Member have been expressed on both sides of the House. It's a matter of some concern. The contract's gone until 2010. We will have to look during that time at what exactly the full effect is. There are many pensions, of course, got an awful lot more money now to put into bank accounts and can be returning. But it is a real, it, but it is a problem. More and more are changing to post office accounts. But I think we, to the bank account. But I think if we look at the changes that are taking place and being discussed with the post office authority, perhaps we will come to a better conclusion here at the end of the time. The discussions are still underway.
0: Paddy <laughs> Tipping. Given the uh, deputy prime minister's long-standing involvement with the local government pension scheme. And following yesterday's industrial action in local councils what steps does he now intend to take to ensure that meaningful discussions take place to resolve the dispute?
1: It is an obvious regret to all of us I think that yesterday's industrial action was taken by the trade unions. To be honest during this course of negotiations I didn't feel it was necessary because the negotiations could, be, could have continued. But the government role here is to act as a regulator. In this, I am given the authority by their House to act as a regulator to make sure this funded scheme is a viable scheme. That is my responsibility, and I tend to do that. And therefore, the negotiations are between the employers and the employee. There is... um, there is the statement I have made to the House where we are intending to deposit this week a regulation that will set out the changes for the coming pension arrangements from April affecting local government pensions. In the meantime, I do appeal to all to get back to the negotiating table. I am pleased to tell the House that at 12.30 they are meeting again and we as a government are encouraging them to come to an agreement about this matter. I think George jaw is always better than war. I can't be sure I have always felt that in my Colourful life, <laughs> but at this stage I certainly do. Thank you. Uh, last year my father uh, died of motor neuron disease, as do 100,000 people worldwide every year. The good news is that uh, recent medical breakthroughs mean a cure is almost in our grasp. Will the Deputy Prime Minister join me in endorsing the Motor Neuron Disease Association's commitment to finding that cure? And will he ask the Prime Minister to meet representatives of the Association to hear their thoughts and plans on how together we can end this tragic and heartbreaking illness? I think the whole House will want to join with me in sending our condolences to the Honourable Member for the difficulties going through in his own personal circumstances, and I'm sure we know of Members on both sides of the House that have been afflicted by this terrible disease. Indeed, I know and have visited not long ago the Honourable Member for Doncaster, Kevin Hughes, who is suffering from this terrible disease at this present time, and actually is still going out canvassing, which is a remarkable (laughs) uh, reflection on this man, those people knowing the circumstances of this disease, and I think the House would want to send our best wishes to him. I'm sure the whole House would also want to endorse the work of the Motor Neuron Disease Association. In addition, I welcome the the fact that the National Service Framework for Long-Term Conditions, as a 20 million research initiative, is now underway to try and speed up the development of new medical treatments for this terrible disease. Can I assure uh, uh, the honourable member that I'm sure my right honourable friend will accede to his request to meet and to discuss this matter and again I think we all would wish all the best to those looking at the experiments conducting the research to try and find an answer to this terrible disease. Mr David Winning. Looking on the bright side and like our honourable friend a moment ago, would my honourable F- right honourable friend agree that by doing its job, the House of Lords Appointments Commission has brought about full disclosure of political loans, and we've given the names unlike the other side, uh, a full public debate, which is very useful about party donations, and apparently, and apparently House of Lords reform uh, a further stage very shortly, all in a fortnight. Isn't that good work? <laughs> I don't know whether the whole contribution was supposed to be funny, but anyway, he he, he makes a very serious point, and I'm sure that the recent stories about the loans to political parties have caused concern on both sides of the House. I don't think there's any doubt about that. There is also, as he refers, a wider public debate about p- how political parties should be funded, though I do notice, on the one hand, people do not like the idea of wealthy people uh, financing parties, but they are equally strong, apparently, against state funding of political parties, though, frankly, that has always been my position for a long time, and I think we will have to increasingly move towards a form of state financing. So not let's—well, I hear people say, no, but the short money is not state financing. I do not see that being turned down by anybody. So— so, le- so no, let's forget. don't no, let's forget. This government's already introduced some of the reforms to make party funding more transparent, and we've asked Sir Hayden Phillips to review these issues and report di- by December. And I think that's the best course of action we can take at the present time.
0: Stephen Hammond. Thank you, Mr. Yeah. Deputy Speaker. My constituency, Wimbledon, is part of the outer London borough of Merton. Our schools are under severe financial pressure. Part of the reason for this is that we pay our teachers the inner London waiting, yet do not receive from the Government the same grant that inner London boroughs do. Will the, deputy commi- will the Deputy Prime Minister agree to meet me to discuss this anomaly and also commit today to sort out this inequity for our borough?
1: I assume that was an eloquent plea for more money. When I look at his constituency on education, yes, there are 50 more teachers, 340 more teaching assistants, 420 more support staff than in 1997. That does cost money and I take the point, he said, whatever the differential is between what we paid in London and outside, that happens with the fire people, happens with the police and there are difficulties from it and we try to deal with it. But I have to say to him that what he is getting is 1,320 funding per pupil more. That is quite a lot of money and uh, that has improved the education and over a million of capital investment So I have to say to him that when he is critical of whether we're putting enough money in, he should be taking into account the principle that was put by the Leader of the Opposition on his business of growth and share-out. And as the Chancellor pointed out in the Budget, that means £17 billion less in public expenditure. Agreed, I think, by the shadow... uh, uh, Whatever she is. What is the title? But she went on the television, and much to her credit, now I see she's moved down from the top of the list down to the bottom because she actually admitted it would mean a cut in public expenditure. I think the Honourable Member should get his own front bench sorted out first. Martin Salter. Many people, including the Shadow Attorney-General, have called for complete transparency in party funding. So has the Deputy Prime Minister considered introducing legislation to force political parties to reveal all their sources of funding, say, prior to the last three general elections, because this would show us exactly how much of the million pounds donated by the Chinese heroin baron Ma Sik-Chung in 1994 was used to fund a Conservative Party printing practice. Yeah, it does sound like a rather Chinese takeaway problem. But there is a very interesting point from my Honourable Friend, which no doubt he will pursue with his usual vigour.
0: William yeah. Mr Speaker, would the Deputy Prime Minister agree with me that he was absolutely right to warn the Prime Minister that government instability would result from saying in advance that he would go? I didn't say
1: The Honourable Member must know, I didn't say that at all. And even though he's got difficulty understanding what I said, I clearly did not say that. It didn't... It may cause uncertainties, was the word that was used, and clearly. And those matters that I said on that day that the Prime Minister makes his decision and he will name the date when the time is right and the transfer is what will happen before the next general election. That is the Prime Minister's commitment, that is what we are saying and I think that's an important point. I know of no other leader that has made such a commitment as a Prime Minister and I know that would be difficult for the Honourable member because he was the first Tory leader never to become a Prime Minister.
0: Well, that was the 2001 election, but at least I got through the campaign without hitting anybody. <laughs> so, let's... We, look, look, look at the... I mean, look, look at the state... Look at the state of this divided government. The former health secretary is attacking the budget in the budget debate. The junior education minister is saying people are being taxed to the limit. Allies of the chancellor are going around saying Gordon is desperately unhappy. And the prime minister has fled the country before the police turn up. Uh, asked about when the Prime Minister was going to go at the weekend, the Deputy Prime Minister said, I still think the timetable in people's minds is still reasonably the same. So what what is the timetable? That's for for me to know and him to guess.
1: (laughs) But you know you know Reference constantly to the incident that occurred during my election. I thought we'd finished Punch and Judy uh, politics here. Now, I know I will call, be called Mr Punch. What does he think that leaves him at? And I, and, I, and I have to say to him, he did lose that election. And a great deal has changed since he was last on the front bench. Because what's not changed is I'm on this side in government, and he's on that side, on the side of the losers. That was the result of that election, and indeed, we will continue to be as successful as introducing economic prosperity and social justice and economic stability that no other country has been able to match. I'm quite proud of that, and I might say to the Honourable member he's a very good example of the election of Labour. Government means great personal prosperity for himself. <laughs>
0: Can he honestly tell the House that, they, that, they, that the government can seriously deal with the problems facing the country when we have a Prime Minister who says he won't go until the NHS is fixed and a Chancellor who won't even mention it in his budget, we've got a Prime Minister who wants an end to pensions means testing and a Chancellor who's introducing more of it, we've got a Prime Minister who wants to reform public services and a Chancellor who's a to reform. a Isn't it time the country knew who was running the government, the man smouldering next to him, or the man in the departure lounge on the other side of the world? I think the Right Honourable Member
1: must know about divisions in his own party. I'm not conceding what he said is right. But you know, his judgment is questionable, as I've already said. And I can remember the Right Honourable Member 30 years ago, when he was just 16, a a little Rotherham lad speaking at the Tory party conference in 1977. I remember him saying what life would be like if Labour was in government in 30 years' time. He will recall he said that. Well, to coin the phrase, have I got news for you? <laughs> We're here, low mortgages, low inflation, two million back at work, a national minimum wage, 800,000 kids lifted out of poverty. That's what happened in the Labour government in 30 years. I'll tell you something, you can have that speech for free. <laughs>
0: my right hon. friend agree that uh, the 1.3 million people who will receive a pay rise in October and the historically high levels of employment in Falkirk and across the country show that the national minimum wage is fulfilling its function precisely
1: the honourable member is absolutely my honourable friend is absolutely right the latest increase in the minimum wage will benefit around 1.3 million workers 66% of them women and of course the leader the, uh, the, the honourable member uh, will be aware that the sustained growth with over two million extra people in employment than in one thousand nine hundred and ninety seven we continue to support those who get paid the least despite the le- The person speaking from the opposition box today were telling us that uh, means testing and indeed the uh, minimum wage would cause mass unemployment. It didn't. We got minimum wage and we got high levels of employment. And the Low Pay Commission shared our aim. This is why we've accepted their recommendations. So I'm proud it's this Labour government that introduced the minimum wage, one of the founding goals of our party, and why we can actually say economic prosperity and social justice go hand in hand, and that's an important part of the policy that's been pursued by this government.
0: Daniel Kavzinski. Thank you, you, Mr Deputy Speaker. Uh, The the Prime Minister and the Deputy Prime Minister came to Shrewsbury in in the year 2000... during the terrible flooding. They promised then that Shrewsbury would be protected from flooding in future. So far, only a tiny area around the council offices has been protected. <laughs> I, I have two questions.
1: When, when will he fulfill the pledge to Shrewsbury? And secondly, when will he return the Wellington boots he borrowed from the Environment Agency locally because he still got them? No, I haven't got them, so I don't know what happened to them. I think that's his little story that he's picked up on the way. But the real point is about flooding in Shrewsbury. Yes, I did visit there, along with many places. We increased the amount of money into protection for flooding to half a billion pounds. It was far less under the previous administration. But as to where and who built the site, I think the Environment Agency will decide which are the most dangerous points to actually bring in uh, greater protection. Whether it was the Council Office or not, I don't know. We provided the resources... And indeed, in the last occasion where there has been flooding, Shrewsbury has been pretty well protected from what happened previously to that. So I think we've done quite
0: well. Jim Dobbin. Is is my right hon. Friend aware of the proposed um, restructuring of health services in the Penhantapute area, which will mean the withdrawal of special care baby units, maternity and children's services uh, from the people of uh, Rochdale, the people of Bury, the people of Rosendale and other parts of East Langs? Um, does the, Prime, uh, the Deputy Prime Minister agree that this is unacceptable and that reconfiguration should be reviewed?
1: Yeah, yeah. I understand that the proposals for the changes in the children's services in the area are part of a wider review, which my Honourable Friend is aware of, and um, which is being cur- carried out currently in consultation, I think, until May the 1st. I am sure that the views of my Honourable Friend and the local population itself will be taken into account during that process and I know during my visit to his own constituency how how active he is on behalf of his constituents and I'm sure that voice will ring loudly in the ears of those who are making these uh, decisions.